Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is uh, Michael Adams, and it's nothing but the truth, one man's journey to find it. And, um, well, this evening we have a uh, first-time guest, uh, Fritz Zimmerman, and he is the author of uh, the book, The Nephilim Chronicles, um, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley. And uh, Fritz and I live relatively close um uh, not in the same town, but we share the same river. That'd be the Muddy Maumee River. So, separate states, but uh, we sh- should have an interesting conversation here. Um, this is something that I've um, I've always been interested in. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe it tickles the ears a little bit, but <clears throat> the possibility could be even more that there is some. If we believe what the the Word of God says, you know, in the in the Old Testament, then well, there were giants in those days, <clears throat> and uh, who knows? Who knows exactly? So, uh, Fritz, I'm going to say thank you for joining me. Um, certainly didn't have to spend your Friday night with a guy like me. You don't even know, so I appreciate it. <laughs> How are you doing? So, yeah, Fritz, you've been you've been doing this research now for two decades or more or less. I started in about '98, so uh, yeah, we're almost on two. We're heading that way. Yeah, we're getting there, huh? <laughs> two more years. <clears throat> so yeah, I've you know, uh, for those that are interested, and uh, what I will do is, those that are in the chat room, I'll. Uh, send some information about Fritz and some of the videos that are out there. There's lots of videos out there of Fritz being interviewed. Um, and Fritz, Fritz has, uh, uh, well, chronicled, uh, I don't know, 2,000 uh, sites or more uh, throughout the Ohio Valley, uh, the Great Lakes region, and I imagine further. Um, I'm going to just read something before we really get into this. This is from uh, this is not one of part of Fritz's uh, work, but this is from someone who's passed away now, William O. Steele, Talking Bones: Secrets of the Indian Burial Mounds. And it's just the beginning, couple of paragraphs of Chapter One: The Mystery of the Mounds. In Ohio, a farmer is plowing his field. His tractor is going back and forth in the middle of of his field is a great mound of earth. It must have been there a long time, for the big trees and the bushes are growing on it. The farmer has never plowed across the mound, neither has anyone else. No one knows what is inside this strange hill, but its shape suggests it was 
made by humans. There are thousands of such mounds from the Mississippi River Valley east to the Atlantic and from Wisconsin south to the Gulf of Mexico. Most farmers have ignored such mounds on their land. However, one farmer was curious. His name was Thomas Jefferson. He was a plantation owner in Virginia who later became the third president of the United States. Around 1780, he dug into a large mound on his neighbor's farm on the Ravenna River and uh, Albemarle County. He dug carefully and made notes of what he found. Inside the dirt heap were skeletons of children and grown people. Jefferson had found a graveyard. He did not know why the mound was on his neighbor's field or how long it had been there. But he felt the skeletons he had uncovered were those of the Indians. And, um, well, that was 1780, and since then, if that... They we're now talking, what, Fritz... Uh, 200 plus years, 236 years from that time. I mean, how long have, uh, I say, Westerners known that there have been Indian burial mounds in the Americas? you have any idea? Well, where Jefferson was, I mean, there were a few out there, but the majority and what my books concentrate on is Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, West Virginia, and the southern tier of Michigan. And that is where 80% of the mounds are, and it's where 80% of the giant skeletons within those mounds were found. So that's the key area right there. Now, the latest book, The Encyclopedia of Ancient Giants in North America, I've got 888 accounts. Kind of what you just read right there, uh-huh. 888 of those. A lot of <laughs> paragraphs, some a little longer, some a little shorter, but all describing them finding these large skeletons. When I say large, I'm not talking 20 feet, not talking pee pipe plum. We're talking around 7 foot. The largest is about 9 foot 7. So right in, right in there. So Seven-footers, a lot of eight-footers, a few nine-footers. So, but a when, lot when, of eight-footers. When, when was the, the well, we're just, just go right into it. <laughs> when was the first time, uh, the first account that we have of a large skeleton being found in this region? Um, well, in the Nephilim Chronicles, I have the account of giants in the Bible, known as the Amorites were real people, real people that were large. They were described in the Bible as large. You know, they controlled Babylon for a while, um, engaged in commerce, engaged in the bronze trade, which brought them over here because of uh, the copper at Isle St. Royal. So they also went to England because there was tin. You need tin and copper, of course, for bronze. Um, So really the earliest accounts are in England. 
And so I probably have 30-some, 40 accounts over in England of them finding giants within burial mounds, which happen to be identical to the type of mounds that you would find in Ohio. Conical mounds, many times having a circle, a ditch, or an earthwork around them. Um, sun temples known as hinges, which we find in England and we find in here. You think of Stonehenge, well, not the stones. The hinge is the earthwork around it, which is a circular earthwork, um, interior ditch, outer bank, generally a gateway aligned to a solar event. So the earliest is in England. And over here, I don't know, probably around there, 1810, 1820, maybe there's the first ones coming through. But you have to realize it's not until these settlers start coming into Ohio and start farming this area. And then, you know, we have, um, just as you read, some are being tilled, you know, whether it's, it's on farmland. Um, and then people are starting to explore the mounds and then give accounts of what they're starting to find in them. So really most of your histories are going to be 1860 to 1910. I mean, that's going to be 90% right in that area, right when, you know, when they're doing the farming and then afterwards people are just going in and out of curiosities, digging into the mounds and then writing about it. A lot of these accounts occurring in county histories, most of those being done from the 1870s to the 1890s, kind of in that where you would find most of your county histories. And then they are going to give accounts of somebody's farm and where they lived in the county and then what was found within those mounds and usually describing large skeletons. It's very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Um, of course, you uh, talk maybe a little more about uh, the Amorites. Uh, I imagine you've done quite a bit of research on them. I know we mentioned uh, Syria, Mesopotamia, and all that kind of stuff. Who were these people, the Amorites, from what you can claim from? Let me go in more detail, if you don't mind especially their role in the Babylonian Empire. Well, they controlled Babylon. They were they were somewhat um, related to the earlier Sumerians. Um, they are probably one and the same people that were the Hykos that actually uh, controlled uh, Egypt for, for a while. Some believe actually that the Exodus story um, is the Hykos coming out. And they had a very close relationship with the Hebrews for many, many years. In the Bible, I can't tell you what uh, what book this is in, but it says of uh, the Jewish people, uh, thy father was an Amorite, thy mother was a Hittite. So even the bloodline is very closely connected with Hebrew. They were a Semitic people, so early Hebrew and Hebrew writing, they would have uh, they would have shared that with them. Um, there is a numerological codex called Gematra, um, which dictated with their religion of uh, 666 being the number for the sun and 1080 being the number for the uh, uh, earth mother. Um, in the Bible, we have one quote that says uh, 666 is related to uh, the Antichrist, and then we have two others where it is an indefinite um, relationship with the sun as 
it normally or, you know, as it originally was. And even in that quote in the Bible, it's actually the most misquoted um, interpretation of anything in the Bible about the 666. Um, if you read it correctly, it says, let he who have understanding count the number, and that's the number of the beast. So first you have to understand, and then you have to count. Well, who was persecuting the Christians? The Romans. So if you count the Roman numerical system, 500, 100, 50, 10, 5, 1, 666. Right. So you have understanding, count that number, that number. That number is a reference to Rome, not really a reference that 666 is an evil number or anything like that. So, but, you know, now we have 666, and it's immediately satanic, and that's really not what it, what it meant. But the Amorites were real people engaged in the Bronze um, Era, which starts around 27, 2500 B.C. Um, they're engaged in the trading of metals and of weapons. Um, they end up in England to get the 10, as I said earlier, and then they end up over in, I don't say Royal, um, for the copper there that, is the purest in the world. So you uh, bring it out of the ground, it's 99% uh, pure, and you don't have to uh, cook it and uh, bake off the impurities. It's just pull it out of the ground and it's ready to ship. So um, it was economic reasons that they came over here. Just the same reason why the pilgrims came here and Jamestown was founded, all on economic principles. So to make a really long story short, that's kind of how they ended up here. And the skull types match who we know who the Amorites were. Um, with those of England, mounds and ones in England match up with the ones in Ohio. Um, burial mound types, sun temples. Um, we even have uh, definitive evidence that they were using the common foot because of the measurements of the earthworks in Ohio. Um, sun temples are either 660 or 666 feet. Squares, which has always been symbolic of the Earth Mother, the four winds. Each side of those, 1080 feet. We have others that are 555 feet. Um, and so hundreds of these earthworks put together, this codex is revealed. And that's all in the uh, uh, Fallen Angels. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it, so Revelation 13, it says specifically, here is a wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 603 scores and six. And um, it's interesting. You know, is it, you, you, the, the number 666 is still in our uh, our culture, lexicon, that's even in our banking system and our taxation system, you know, the 666, and you find that in the barcode, and then you, the 10, have you ever thought of it, when you hear that, that number 1080, and then we got like even a form, a 1080 form that we got to fill for taxes, you ever saw any correlation, um, or just well, coincidence? Yeah, 1080, you have a 1080 on your TV? No, not none at all. Um, you know, it's just that coincidence. Yeah. Um, also in the Bible, uh, and again, I'm horrible about telling what books stuff come out. I mean, it's in the book. It's in Fallen Angels. They have it in there. But um, they bring Solomon um, 600, 3 score, and 6 talents of gold yeah. as, like, tribute. 
Well, let's look at the name Solomon. Sol, we all know what that means, Latin for sun. Am is Hindi for sun. An is the Egyptian word for sun. Solomon means sun, sun, sun. And uh, you can even drop the O in his name down three times. O in our alphabet, ancient alphabets, 15th letter of the alphabet. So you have 15, 15, 15, which I've always believed was an anagram, 1 plus 5, 1 plus 5, 1 plus 5. Um, there's also another quote in the Bible. Uh, when people were escaping Nebuchadnezzar, uh, they were led by a guy named Adonacum, and they had 600 score and six people with them. So Adonacum, and you have 666 people, probably a reference to the Phoenician sun god Adonis. So not Adon as in Lord, but Adon S as in Phoenician sun god. So um, those are the kind of things that I explore in the book and try uh -huh. to give uh, an alternative meaning and uh, show my evidence that this is what it means. So most people aren't real, don't realize that 666 pops three times in the Bible. Two times it's definitive reference to the sun. And then the third, like we just discussed, was really a misinterpretation of the number. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, yeah, definitely if you look at the Roman Empire, even to this well, I, quite frankly, I think from all my research this day, the Roman Empire never left us. And this sun worship thing is still going on. Sure. And, yeah, and it happens every uh, September 25th when you yeah. celebrate Christmas. That's Absolutely. a solar holiday, followed by uh, the uh, celebration of Astart um, for Easter. Yeah. I think so, people going to, going to church on a Sunday, the first day of the Going week. to Sunday. Yeah. So yeah. you go to church on a Sunday, you already got two strikes because you're not obeying the Sabbath. So the best you're going to do is 80% on the test. Right, Ten Commandments. <laughs> so you're already you've already wiped two off the table. So but you have to live live a pretty straight life by going to church on Sunday. Now I don't care what people says. I mean the Bible says what it says. It says you got to obey the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not Sunday. It's Friday to Saturday. So mm -hmm. um, as far as that, I uh, I appreciate the uh, Seventh Day Adventists because at least I adhere to that that principle. Yeah. It'd be fascinating. Though. I did some some research on that, though. I have to tell you, from my research and talking to people who come out of there, that the leadership at the top of that, they knew they know that it's not about a Saturday or a Sunday. It's actually the uh, well, the Hebrews in the Old Testament they followed the lunar calendar, and uh, you know, they, this fate was they could through. You know, the Gregorian calendar they weren't operating on. The Julian calendar they weren't operating on. They were operating on a lunar calendar. And the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventists know that, and they will not tell anybody about it as far as the church goes, because, well, you know, they don't want to lose their power. Another interesting thing, too, is if you look at the star of the quote-unquote star of David and how that all adds up to 666. Have you ever looked into that? And the star of Rapham and that kind of thing? And I was just wondering... Uh -huh. if, have you actually seen that same kind of configuration in the mountains in your your math, you know, doing your geometry um, in these mounds of these uh, hexagrams? Because they do actually add up to 666, six, six, 60 degrees, <laughs> and then six sides and everything else. is six everywhere. 
So I just find that fascinating, too. Nothing in that shape, but, you know, like in Newark, we have an octagon, and um, uh, the mathematics within these earthworks, it's evident that they knew advanced mathematics, which is pi, square roots, and even Pythagorean theorems are showing up in the distances between mounds uh-huh. and making perfect or you know, Pythagorean triangles. And um, it's pretty fascinating because that you can't, that's not interpretation because math is math. I mean, you have a distance from here to here at this angle and it either is or it isn't. Now what's interesting is who developed advanced mathematics were the Emirates. So we know they had it and it shows up in England and it shows up within the earthworks in the Ohio Valley. Right. So there's layer upon layer upon layer of evidence that you're going to find things out about those earthworks in the Ohio Valley that you're not going to get from a university because they cannot possibly say there's advanced mathematics because as soon as they do, then that would say that Native Americans didn't do them. Now, Native Americans were there. The Sioux Indians were actually the Hopewell, or who we call the Hopewell. Eventually, these Amorites were just absorbed into their population. But initially, it was these people. And then they would eventually just be absorbed into Sioux populations who just happened to have a genetic marker called Haplo-X and a... uh, a geneticist that I'm going through my Rolodex right now trying to remember his name. I met him in uh, Salt Lake City a, a couple years ago, but he did the work on that, and he tracked Haplo-X actually back to the Dead Sea area right where the Amorites lived, and he did that around 2,000 to 2,500 years ago was where it left there and ended up here. So um, a lot of good evidence. Yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's no reason to think it's even far-fetched. I mean, for, until somebody has definitive evidence of even the crossing of the Barren Strait and everything else, uh, you know what? Why not? Shipbuilders, why not? Why can't they have been uh, traversing the... Um, the Atlantic Ocean, or even the Pacific, using the... Well, archaeologists will tell you that Neanderthals found Australia 25,000 B.C. Right. So I think if they could go all the way down to Australia, that uh, hip-hopping across the uh, North Atlantic with uh, Greenland and Iceland and... um, you know, the Labrador and, and, you know, the islands, you could go back and forth, um, that that certainly would be feasible. And even more feasible if there were riches, which there were with the, with the copper deposits, that uh, there was a, a payday involved. Absolutely. Which is what always spurns man to uh, venture out into the seas and take those risks. Where where is that that copper mine that we're talking about in Michigan? Where's it? Where's that exactly? It's up in well, the peninsula, on, but, but where? It's a yeah, well, 
No, it's west of there. It's up in Isle St. Royal, which is uh, Superior. Okay. And uh, there's 10,000 mines. There is something like 50,000 tons of copper that they cannot account for that was pulled out of there. One researcher said the the mines and the holes that they dug and, and all that would have taken uh, 10,000 men a thousand years to do it. So massive operation, tons of copper that we have no account for. I mean, they just removed a lot of copper out of there. And not only that, you know, generally when Native people find metals, they make rings and bracelets out of it. These people were pulling up massive chunks, like 20 tons. And moving them up because they were they were doing this on such a mass scale. So, you know, you don't bring up that much to make a bracelet. So, I mean, just what they did, what they left. And it's like, yeah, they're not making bracelets, and you know, why are they bringing up that much? Why are they going to that much trouble? Because there's a lot of it you just find on the ground. If you want a bracelet, you could probably walk around I'll say Royal and you know grab chunks of it. But, I mean, they were going for volume and the amount of mines, you know, uh, leaves that evidence. Right. And high quality as well. Or uh, Then you also go look at the fact that North America, as time goes on, the numbers are always being revamped as far as how many people lived here. And at one time, they had diminished the numbers to being less than 10 million throughout North America, but now those numbers have increased significantly. And who knows how many people actually lived here. As you know, you got that the one city was, I can't remember the name of it now, but you know, the the pyramid and the city there outside of St. Louis, a city that was larger than any city in uh, Western Europe. And... um, uh, right, that's uh, Cahokia you're, you're thinking of. And Cahokia, I mean, that's all fascinating. Uh, that's a Mississippian area, era. Um, so we're looking about three or 400 years beyond the end of what was going on in Ohio. Right. And then that Mississippian was a later version of the Sioux who eventually left the Ohio Valley according to their legends, split, um, some going north, some going south, some down into Arkansas, Missouri, which would be that Mississippian era, then down in, you know, down in the southeast. Um, right. But the same people as far as the lineage with the Sioux, um, but later than my focal point, which is Ohio Valley. Sure. Well, the point I brought it up is only to to demonstrate that even when the first, quote-unquote, first European settlers came here, there were already cities larger than uh, anything in Western Europe. So who's to say that by the the period of time that you're talking about that they didn't even have larger cities than that? Um, You know, one of the things is, you know, if you look at, start to putting the pieces together the best that we can, <clears throat> with all the history that's been memory hold, 
And we look at whether it's the Roman Empire, um, and if you know if you study, you know, some of you know, if you're familiar with the the Old Testament, so we know that the fourth and final empire is actually the Roman Empire. But if you go back far enough, either what does Roman Empire, or the empires prior to the Babylonian Empire, and the the numbers of slaves and slavery and the use of slaves. And when, you know, we're, if you start breaking the numbers down, we're not just talking a few thousand here, folks. We're not even talking a few hundred thousand. Where do they all go? If you're talking about this mining stuff, um, were they enslaving even these giant people? Why not? Could the uh, could they, the Amorites and, and the sons of Anak and Anakims and the uh, Edoms? Uh, could they have enslaved these these people, shipped them on boats over there to what we now know the Great Lakes to do the mining, and then they they some escaped or got away, and there they you know you never know. I know I know it's just conjecture, just speculation. There's not that's the problem with this whole situation, Fritz. It's a bunch of conjecture and speculation, and it's maddening because. Something terribly rotten is happening in Denmark, my friend. For people to say and blindly accept the fact that there's such giant vacuums of of just erased history, and just to be compliant about it and be accepting of it, it's disturbing. It says a lot about us, human nature. Maybe the fall of man itself. I don't know. But, I mean, you talk about archaeology. I mean, do some research on the, the, the between 7 AD and 1000 AD and try to find as, as much stuff as you possibly can, especially when it comes to Western Europe. And you're not going to find very much. Well, you know, as and, far as... My topic goes, I mean, that is controlled by the universities. Right. And they they have been the paradigm of what people know about the burial mounds. But they're, um, they are Beringia theorists. The Beringia theory, same thing we learned in school. A bunch of people left Asia, came across the uh, land bridge, Across Asia into Alaska, and then down in they came. Um, that's what they're at. So anyone like me, I'm considered a diffusionist, saying that people had come here, come here in boats. They had come here for commerce. Um, in addition to the Beringia theory, I'm not just counting it that people didn't do that, but when it comes to civilizations like the uh, Ohio mound builders that have shown geometry and advanced mathematics and some of these other aspects that these came from somewhere else, that these weren't Native Americans, per se. Right. It, it, yeah. And it seems to me there's been some hints uh, through Hollywood and and the past, uh, some historians have been telling us all along this is the case. I mean, let's look at this 2,000 years ago, and I know it's not your studies, but it's all relative. 
I really, I'm a diffusionist as well. I, when you look at the Chinese Empire and the size of ships that they were building, just what little we know, what that we've been allowed to glimpse at, that hasn't been destroyed through all the wars. And uh, I have to tell you, <laughs> when you look at Rome, you look at the Jesuits, you look at their dirty hands in the Roman Empire or Western Europe in the colonization and how they systematically destroyed records. But you know what? They weren't alone in this. This is a standard it was a standard practice with uh, uh, empires, be the Babylonian Empire, etc. It seems to be that just a standard practice is to destroy the conquered people's past. And to think that somehow the folks that came to this country or this this continent would be any different is extremely naive. So yeah, there's it should be always in the back of our minds that the odds are that the the distant past in this part of the world was memory home. Could be under the Vatican in his vaults, could be somewhere else, could be in a university in some basement somewhere or Smithsonian's, or who who knows? Some wealthy man, some oligarch, wealthy oligarch, under his mansion. You know, a lot of these large skeletons got shipped to the Smithsonian, and the Smithsonian actually sent men out to collect them. They would find a giant skeleton, and it might be reported in a newspaper. And they may have a note at the end of that and say the Smithsonian is en route to come retrieve the skeleton. So, yeah, well, all those belts. That's always been the big question of, of of the giants. Like, well, I have all these accounts of giants. We know the Smithsonian came and got it, but people that have asked the Smithsonian, um, I mean, it's a brick wall. They're they're not revealing that they have those. I've heard that they took a lot of the skeletons and dumped them in the uh, Potomac. They just said, get rid of them. Like, we don't want them here. We don't want any of this around. We don't want this evidence here. And they they dumped them. So that's possible. They could be, they could just be in boxes. I mean, it's a huge <clears throat> facility. Right. Um, that last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark where it's a warehouse, they're in there somewhere, possibly. But we do know historical records show that they were coming to get them. Now, a lot of the giant skeletons, um, they measured them, but the consistency was almost chalk-like, like wet chalk. I mean, you couldn't remove them. So they would have a doctor or something, and he would measure it, and it would be this big but nothing happened to it. Sometimes they ended up in stores. Sometimes locals came. One guy took a bone, a leg bone. Another guy took an arm. Another guy took a skull. And they just disappeared. So they're everywhere. But we're yeah. looking for intact yeah. skeletons. And, and if you think about it, too, you know, we're talking now 200 years ago, 100 years ago. That's a, you know, plus they've been in the ground for 1,000 years. Uh, 2,000 years. 2,000 years, 3,000 years, maybe even longer. Um, and, pro- you know, uh, the dating process, as you probably know, is pretty, it's not reliable. And I remember I went to 
college and university for environmental science management, did a lot of the chemistry classes and did a lot of the, this dating stuff, and it's quite a joke. So, but so it's, it's, that's not reliable. So a lot of the we have to count on are putting pieces together, bits here and there, and um, it seems to me it's such an intelligent, uh, you know, a group of people like the Amorites would have um, quite a bit of some kind of writing somewhere, at least stone etched in stone. You know, it's one of the things they were known for, right? Um, Stonework and um, and uh, yeah, well, what happened? They, what, they, what happened? To all this stuff because you know you hear all these reports of this, that, and the other, but they they soon disappear. And I understand, you know, there's like a lot of things, there's a lot of shenanigans. Shenanigans. I'm not saying it right. Uh, I can't say it right now. I'm sorry, my MS. But there's a lot of things that go on uh, that are pretty, uh, well, pretty rotten and nefarious when it comes to uh, archaeology. And we have this dilemma. I mean, let's put it this way, like with the Bone Wars uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago in this country and throughout the world, and they identified 120-some supposed species of dinosaurs, and it turns out that over 90 of them, or close to 90 of them at least, turned out to be frauds. Piltdown Man is a fraud. You know, there was, seemed to be a, a lot of questionable things going on. Now, saying that, I'm not in any way saying that what you're saying, Fritz, is wrong. I'm just saying there's so much to weed through with this particular issue, and it is of interest to many of us. It's almost like it's well, maybe it's because as children, you know, we learned about Jack and the Beanstalk or something like that. But it seems almost like, like, uh, like a DNA imprint of uh, a memory, if you will, of, of the distant past. And if you look at even the Old Testament, just look at what talking about Adam and the, the prior to the flood, and <clears throat> that they lived longer, got bigger. How much of these uh, uh, Neanderthal Magnum man is really just our ancestors who just live longer, live stronger, got bigger, that kind of thing, you know? Um, well, of 888 accounts that's in the encyclopedia, are some of those frauds? Absolutely. But are all of them frauds? No. But you've got 900. And many times it's doctors that look at the skeleton. It was a judge or somebody that was out on the dick. And then these end up in a county history. Well, who bought county histories? You would know. I'm not sure what county you're in. You're in Lucas, Lucas somewhere around there. Um, your county history. Um, these were landowners. These were judges. These were lawyers. I mean, there's pretty prominent people that bought the, the county histories. Well, they're not going to have, um, you know, fairy tales in there. The judge was there. This is what he said. He saw them measure the skeleton. This is what it was. And that got printed. But um, I hold that as true. I hold that these county histories were true and that if this guy said this is what he saw 
and he had the prominence of a judge or a leading citizen in that county, that that's probably what they saw. Yeah. So do we have those bones to look at and compare? No, because, you know, a lot of them disappeared. But we do have those records. And would you be you know, willing? Are some of those far fetched and made up? Well, I'm sure there are. Right. But um, you get all of them. You know, there's 900 of them. It took me a while to get those. Falkland Angels has 300 accounts in that. And uh, but Falkland Angels is more of who they were, what the evidence is, the math, the geometry, the gematra, skull types, burial types, mound types, earthwork types, and then showing that link between the biblical lands to England and then from England to here. So not saying that people from England necessarily came here, but they were the same people. I think they were making direct routes from um, the Levant and the Eastern Mediterranean and then over to uh, North America. And then the flowering of the Adena really happens about the time of of, uh, Joseph and them coming in and conquering the uh, Amorites um, and the Hittites moving south, Egyptians moving north. The Levant got too hot and moved out of there. And I just figured this was their uh, last redoubt. They knew they could come to North America. So a lot of them just came over here at that time. So I don't believe uh, the Bible killed every one of them. I know they say they slaughtered a bunch of them, but probably not all of them. As later on, we have the story of Goliath. It says he is a remnant of the Rephiam. So, I mean, that story is long after, you know, the story we're telling happened. But that bloodline obviously still stayed around because Goliath had it. And it's why he was at such large size. Right. And his brothers and that. Hey, would you be willing as like a teaser for uh, encouraging my audience to buy your book? That you be, would you share one of your stories? One of those, one of the ones that are most convincing to you, uh, being authentic of discovering uh, a giant skulls and and um, this region. You know, the, you got the three hundred or to the eight hundred. Is there one in particular story that you could share with us that just just knocks your socks off and says this is, this has to be absolutely legit. Yes, there is, and it's uh, <clears throat> this is from uh, Muskegon County, Ohio. Um, it's in their county history, and they dug into a, a burial mound and found five skeletons that were all right around nine and a half feet. Okay. Uh-huh. They were so unsure that future generations would believe this story that they basically had their tale notarized in the county history. That on this day, we dug into this mount, and this is what we found, and this is what we measured, And these are all the people that were with us, and these are all the people that witnessed it, and they all signed this document. This was it. This is exactly what we saw. Um, In that was also a tablet with inscriptions on it. And 
Some have said it's the Alpha Omega symbol along with some others. Um, it's not like the uh, small tablet they found at Grape Creek where it's, you know, obviously Hebrew, um, but uh, strange symbols. Some deciphered it. We really don't know what it means, but, I mean, there's been people that have attempted to decipher it. I wrote an article about what different uh, interpretations on it. But I found that so convincing that they would go to that much trouble that they wanted to make sure that future generations knew that this is what they found. And, you know, and again, we have that provenance of a county history going to the most reputable people in the county. And this would not have been a venue to um, uh, perpetrate a hoax. And they signed that document that that is what they found. That all the skeletons were around nine and a half foot. All five of them. And I think there was a woman or two in there, too, and they were of large size. So, um, yeah. Well, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? So what are what are your uh, future projects that you have coming up uh, for the folks to maybe look, track you with? Well, one thing before I go into that, you know, I have... Encyclopedia of Ancient Giants in North America. That just came out this last year. Um, Fallen Angels in Ohio. Uh-huh. Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels. The other book, Nephilim Chronicles, The Travel Guide to the Ancient Ruins in the Ohio Valley. This was a ton of work. This was 12 years of field work. Um, I physically investigated 700 mountain earthwork sites in Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Michigan, southern tier of Michigan. And I photographed 222. Um, I photographed 85 in Indiana. Or Kelly just knew of 30. So I'm way ahead of them there. Um, But Kentucky, West Virginia. In Ohio, where you are, um, well over 100 sites. Everything the Ohio Historical Society had address restricted, I gave directions to uh-huh. right. because many times, I mean, these mounds are the size of a two-story building. And if you know where it is, you can drive by it, and especially in the winter, which I always encourage people, it's like, if you're going to go do mounds, do it in the winter when all the foliage is gone, maybe some light snow on the mounds, beautiful. But if you know a road to go down, you'll see this mound the size of a two-story building sitting in a field, one of the burial mounds. Um, that people have the right to know that. I mean, the locals know about it. Uh-huh. But, you know, if you're living in Toledo, you don't know what's in Muskegon or Ross or Licking counties. Um, but to give directions, though, so uh, it's pretty exciting. You could go, uh, take a day trip, you know, from where you're at in northern Ohio. You can be down there in, uh, what, hour and a half? two hours from Indiana, you're only a couple hours away from Kentucky, West Virginia, or even less than that. Um, and if you live somewhere else uh, in the country, um, you can come to this region. And uh, Where, where's, What's the best location for the to, to get the biggest bang for the buck as far as if you wanted to make a, a weekend out of it? Because, um, you know, I, me, if I could go east and go to Norwalk, but 
that mound there was in a golf course. I mean, you know what I mean? I think you look no, at Northern Ohio. Northern Ohio isn't real rich. You have to get you have to get into the Scioto or Scioto, as Ohioans call it. Um, Indian name for it was Scioto. I've always called it that. I've been corrected many times. It's Scioto, but it's not spelled that way. It's not what the Indians call it. Um, uh, but you have to get into that drain. So really, the line. There are some sites a little bit north of Columbus, but you're looking at Columbus South, basically. Um, even Columbus. I mean, you can go to Columbus, Ohio. There's the high banks, uh, earthworks, and mounds. Um, there's one kind of moving into there, the Worthington Mound, um, Shrum Mound. Um, but you really get in some really good stuff around Ross County, Licking County, of course. Um, Sherpa Mound is way down around Adams County. But uh, you get into that region and around Dayton, Ohio, um, Rensselaer Forest, Carlisle Earthwork. Um, and you can bounce around there and probably see six, seven, eight sites in a day. And a lot of these you're going to park your car. They're actually, I mean, they're, the earthworks are all on public ground. Um, you're probably going to hike a good mile or two to get back to it. But in the winter, you can see it perfect. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. So a gas of two bucks a gallon. It really makes for an inexpensive, exciting weekend to go and explore these sites. And like I said, I mean, really, the mound season, what I consider the mound season, starts a little after Thanksgiving. Because by then, we've had a couple good frosts, and uh, you can go, and you want to go when uh, when uh, all of the undergrowth is dead. You can go to sites like Fort Hill, which is south of uh, Chillicothe, massive earthwork. sits on this hilltop, huge. I mean, just absolutely massive. 33 gateways in it. But if you go in the summer... 30, 30, 33 gateways? Yeah. Really, 33. <laughs> That's very Freemasonic and very much... Uh, there's a well, lot of... A lot of the gateways, <laughs> a lot of the gateways to these earthworks are 33 feet. And the Serpent Mound, which is down the road from uh, uh, Fort Hill, um, it's a serpent that has three bends in the body, uh-huh. the tail coils three times, and it's pointed to the confluence of three creeks, three, three, three. 33 happens to be square root 1080. 33 is the square root of the Earth Mother. And that's just another instance of numerology and mathematics that plays into the mounts. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. so the uh, mystery schools that came out of, uh, well, the Middle East, uh, Babylon, and talk about the Amorites, do you, do you feel like that they were practitioners maybe of them? I understood them. Oh. Understood well, and brought they- with them. Because you mean why they would why, there's a, go ahead? There's an allusion to that in the Bible, and uh, um, uh, what is it? It's uh, I don't think it's Chronicles. Like I said, I'm just horrible about um, name of Bible quotes. But the Bible quote is, um, and oh, I know it is. It's uh, Genesis eleven one. 
And that says that now the whole world had one language. Okay, well, we're not speaking language as in German, English, French, you know, Arabic, or anything like that. The language they're talking about is numerology and sacred geometry. So a circle is a sun and the square is an earth mother. And the earthworks in the Ohio Valley are, are simple in their shapes. Of course, we have octagons, but within the octagon is a square, and the square is the same diameter as the circle that it's attached to, squared circles. Um, but it's, it's very, the numerology very... and the sacred geometry. That's what that throws into I mean, it's Genesis 11, 1, 1, 1, 1. It's kind of giving you a clue. We're talking about numbers here. But, see, we don't talk about that in church, right? Because numerology is evil, and, uh, but, you know, it's in there in the Bible. It's you know, that, everywhere that's, in the Bible. The funny thing is, for me, Fritz, I grew up, uh, I uh, raised a Mormon. So, of course, you need the Book of Mormon and all that, and so you have all this, you know, which is, you know, total plagiary, but it's, it's well, actually, it's, it's it's much more fascinating than people imagine how it all came about. But well, I uh, just got back from uh, two weeks ago. I was in Nauvoo, oh, yeah. doing a talk to the Mormons, and uh, two years ago I was in Salt Lake because Mormons believe in diffusion. So even though my book isn't about Mormons, um. I'm bringing people from the biblical lands over to here. And like what I just told them two weeks ago, it's like, look, you know, I'm not saying these people that came over here and they mined copper and they did this and, you know, that. But I said, it's just like the pilgrims coming over here. Pilgrims came over on a Dutch ship, right? Uh So the Mormons, if they came here, they came here on those Amorite ships. They just boarded and got over here. So... But this is a venue. This is a road that you can go down. And I'm going to prove that this road is true, that there was a road and there were people coming down it. Uh-huh. And you were just on a boat on that shipping lane. So I open the door. I'm not a Mormon writer. I'm not a Mormon. But we, I can give them evidence that yeah, that could have happened. You know, there's people at that time frame that could have come over. This is how they got here. They, so, yeah, they definitely would be interested because they've been desperately looking for something to prove their Book of Mormon is legit. Uh, but, well, uh, the church finally um, got off the whole South American thing, and now there's a big sect of Mormons that are believing in the North America, because this is where all the evidence is. you got, like, people like me that are giving evidence of, like, well, this is where it happened. So I can take things they knew from that biblical region and bring it over here. So this is where we're at. There's nothing in South America, but there's a lot here. So, like I said, you know, I'm not a Mormon, but I speak to Mormons. Always a big hit, because I provide them that evidence that there were people coming over here from that region, which is what they believe, of course. Yeah, even us ex-Mormons still are interested in it. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's very fascinating that, 
if you really think about Fresno, I'm sure you have numerous times. If you're, I mean, first of all, to be out there in the the Great Lakes region and the winter, or the Ohio Valley, you got <clears throat> you must enjoy the cold because <laughs> it does get windy and cold around here, doesn't it? When all those leaves are gone, oof, it gets pretty cold around here. So, um, but uh, yeah, you, you think about what so much has been memory hold, so much has been erased, so much has been hidden from us. I think you just look at the Mormons. Let's just talk about the Mormons a little bit more about this. It was the time of when Joseph Smith, when he allegedly wrote, you know, found the the golden plates, <clears throat> and uh, that this, you know, this is the 1820s, the 1830s, and there was quite a bit of talk going around throughout the um, east of the Mississippi, at least, uh, finding these mounds. Uh, that there was this kind of the potential of trade between East and West. And, I mean, most likely that is the case. I mean, I at this point don't trust much of what comes out of... I mean, I, I don't know about you, Fritz, but the majority of what I learned in public schools and in college and university didn't amount to much. And I'm sure you feel the same way at the end of the day. I mean, you know what I mean? So how much do we really know? You know, after you spend all that time and money and and you get down, you're like, you know, all I got was a, a ticket to climb on the bus, but I haven't really learned anything about anything. No. And, and, and they have deliberately no, been dumbing down history in this country and particularly, and it's overwhelming evidence for the past 100 years, 100 years ago, so these the top major, I think it was 50 universities in this country, all made it mandatory that you took history classes. Today, even if you look at the Ivy League schools, I think there's only one. They don't want us to know about our history. They don't want to know so about our history, about even from Europe, let alone in this country. So it's like it's like a. Uh, my hats off to you, Fritz, because you know. It has got to be a, a quite a bit of a challenge and frustrating at times because you're trying to piecemeal what you can, what the history was. You know, I even well, 500 years ago, there was 5,000. Go ahead. And in a puzzle, you can't make a piece fit if it don't fit. Either it fits or it doesn't fit. So I didn't go and start and go, I have a theory because, you know, that's the way science works. They like to tell you that they go by the empirical methods and blah, you know, scientific methods. They don't. No, they don't. They go, they have their theory, and then they dig into a mound to prove their theory is true. I never started that way. I mean, these could have been pygmies from Borneo. <laughs> and if that's where the evidence led, that's what we'd be talking about tonight. Pygmies from Borneo that built these mounts, but it wasn't. And it was a very slow process. Well, 10 years of slowly putting them together and the evidence kept mounting and mounting and mounting. It's like, they're from here. They have to be from here. This is where all the evidence goes. And I don't have any evidence that points anywhere else. It always seems to go to the same place. 
and everything links together. So um, I didn't, I mean, it was a long process, of course, but when you discover an ancient civilization, usually you know, it's not like stumbling over a rock, you know. Uh-huh. It's a long process. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of evidence that has to be um, accrued. Um, and I remember in the day when I was doing research, I had piles of paper of topics and piles that went all the way around my living room. So if I read something that day, I'd be like, oh, I've, I've read this before. Then I have to remember what pile that went into. And I had them all marked. But <laughs> that was the process that I came to because it was so much, you know, and slowly coming through until finally, you know, piles became, several piles became one pile. And then be like, okay, this is this all goes together and this all goes together. But uh, uh, it was a long process. Now, one thing, people wonder, like, well, how would you get this information? Because, you know, actually, when I started this, I mean, the Internet was pretty fledgling um, and slow. Um, is that here in Allen County, we have the second largest genealogical library in the country. That means that no matter where you live in the U.S. or Canada, or, um, I have your county history. I can pull it off the shelf. I can probably pull up several of them if there's several counties or uh, histories that were done, maybe some township histories. So I spent a lot of years up there um, accumulating all of this and then actually going to the site. So I would read about mounds and then I would travel there to see what was left, what was not left. But I had that at my disposal, and nobody else did. So really nobody until, well, even now, a lot of these county histories are online, but certainly not all of them. But that's how the encyclopedia um, became, because I was able to have a lot of newspaper be through uh, newspaper reporting, like newspaper.com, and uh, there's another one that my library subscribes to, but... uh, um, some additional county histories and then all these newspaper reports to give us 900 of these accounts, which is encyclopedia. So kind of need to set that premise that nobody else, unless you lived here or you lived in Salt Lake City, but pretty tough to be living in Salt Lake City and then getting in your car to go to Ohio to check out mountain sites, quite a drive. So you really had to have been right here where I'm at for any of this to happen. So that's why you're talking to me. Now, there's other people that are writing books on giants. And all I can say is um, I released some on the web, and those just became books. So yeah. I'll leave it at that. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great way to go about it. Uh, a, a friend of mine who just passed away, and I don't know if you knew Dave McGowan, but he died of cancer last year, but that's the way he did it. He's got some wonderful books of research. Just did a, a wonderful book on uh, the weird, the weird scene. The last book he did was the weird scenes in the canyon, inside the canyon, and uh, that's about the music industry and how it was all created in the '60s and early '70s outside of Laurel Canyon in Southern California, which is a completely different topic. But I think sometimes that's the best way when you're doing a research like what you're doing. To do just what you just did, and have doing it. It's you know you know the book that 
in the Encyclopedia of the Ancient Giants of North America. That's one heck of a cover. Where did you get that idea? Where did that come from? Um, I met an artist. I liked her work. Um, that would, you know, they had deformed skulls. I mean, is that exactly what all of them look like? Yeah, probably not. But kind of gives you that. I wanted to get that sense of they didn't quite, you know, if they would have been walking down the sidewalk on a busy street, they had gotten a double take to be like, wow, that guy's, you know, got a big tall head or it's <laughs> slanted because they were doing head deformation. So, um, yeah, I wanted to relay that, uh, that uh, these would have looked like some pretty strange beings, not only being eight foot, but, uh, uh, yeah, with um, skull deformation of uh, definitely standing out in the crowd. So, um, huh. a little bit. And then, of course, on Nephilim Chronicles, that earthwork that you see with the 666, there's two of those. And uh, those are both in Charleston, or were, because they're gone now. The mound that was in the middle is still there, and we have a photograph and directions of that in the travel guide. Um, but the Smithsonian measured those 666 feet in circumference, both of them. <laughs> and they're aligned to the uh, summer solstice sunset and sunrise. Well, you know, it's not it's, really surprising. Stonehenge is the same thing. It's to the uh, summer solstice sunrise. Was it at the, uh, well, the oldest known religion that I been able to find so far that other people have done the research on is this serpent worship. The worship of the, the serpent has been the oldest known religion that I can find, along with sun worship, as being the. Well, they're the, one and the same. Out. The serpent represented the sun, so serpent worship is really sun worship. So, like the serpent mound in Ohio is aligned to the summer solstice sunset. But it's sun worship, but the serpent um, embodies the sun. So, but serpent was also a concert of the Earth Mother. Sometimes it's used as a protector of the dead. Um, and I do have other serpent mounds besides the Serpent Ohio and a couple of these protectors of the dead, one of which you can go see. It's still right next to a burial mound. Um, but generally, serpent worship, sun worship, you're, you're talking the same thing, just to clarify. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I hear that. I've heard that before. Um, I I would disagree a little bit on that one. <laughs> I think there's uh, there's something there's there's a there's a spiritual element to this that's very dark. When you look at the, the connection between serpent worship and also sun worship. And human sacrifice that's involved with these places, it's pretty, it's got to be something greater than just the sun. You know what I mean? Now, um, well, let me well, let me put it in the context of what you're going to find in Ohio and in uh, England. Uh-huh. They're one and the same. No. So I'm not going to say somebody worshipped a serpent and they were sun worshippers because, you know, history is a, a big place. So, but... In the context of what we're talking about in the Ohio Valley, the serpent represented the sun. So let me clarify that. Okay. Um, yeah. What, what a journey you've had, huh? 
So uh, you got these, uh, was you got a new book uh, and the, the works, or I know you just came out with the encyclopedia. Uh, um, yeah, I'm going a little off topic. I'm doing one right now called Blood on the Ohio, and uh, it's just the brutality of conquering the Ohio Valley by the settlers and run-ins with Indians and all the nasty things we did to the Indians and all the nasty things the Indians did in retaliation. I mean, there are no innocent parties, but uh, um, so it's non-biased, of course. But um, it's going through the historic books of uh, of counties along there and just looking at what happened, you know. I mean, they chronicled all that information, so I'm just finding some really brutal, awful stories about, geez, what these people went through and um, what the Indians went through and, you know, the incursion onto their lands and and, and that. But then uh, this winter, I'll be doing a revamp of the travel guide. And in the initial one, I mean, there's 222 sites, but, you know, I mean, that could be a relatively small mound here in Allen County or Noble County, which is to the north of me, or maybe a small count, uh, mound around where you are in Lucas, Fulton County, something like that. I got some in Williams County, but really want to concentrate on all the big sites, which is probably going to be about 100. Um, technology has changed a lot um, since I started field work in uh, 98, 99 um, with GPS. So including GPS coordinates, uh, color photos, which, you know, the mound guide would have been $100 if I would have put color photos in it so I can go ebook, get lots of color photos, add more photos, um, and uh, better directions with the GPS and some of that. So we're going to update that book this winter. And uh, then I will have an ancient series for at least those five states and then probably Illinois, Wisconsin, um, where I'm going to pull all the records uh, from those states. And so it'll just be county by county, of everything they ever found in your county, mounds and skeletons and anything ancient. So it'll be an expansion on um, what anyone's ever seen before as far as being a historical document that's just dealing with ancient history. But we'll go state by state on that. So, um, yeah, I'm going to be pretty busy for about three years, four years doing that. But I'll probably have five books, six books, maybe out, maybe more than that. Wow. By then, that's a, a lot of work. Hey, um, you just got me thinking about uh, Abraham Lincoln, and um, that might be a good way to start it out with one president of the United States talking about the Indian mounds. Now, there was another president, supposedly, allegedly, I don't know if you can verify this, or if, you, or if you were able to verify it or not, that being Abraham Lincoln talking about giants. If were you ever able to verify that? I know you've heard of it before, but if you supposedly outside, was it outside of Niagara or something like that, where he had a speech? Yeah, you know? he said something to the fact in 1848 in front of Congress about the those extinct giants gazed upon Niagara as we do now. And some people say he was talking about mastodons. I believe he was talking about 
the Giants. Um, so, <laughs> two okay. schools of thought on that. But Mastodons. Abraham Lincoln was a was a, a fan of the mounts. He left. Uh, I don't know what. I don't know. Was it Carthage? Maybe down further. But anyway, he went down the Ohio River, and then he floated east, or took a, a riverboat east, and then ported in Portsmouth, and then went up the uh, Scioto north, and w- went on a, on a mound trip. So, and he was very interested in uh, uh, in the mounds. Um, it was 1848 that uh, Squire and Davis did Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley. And I think he got his hands on that and just saw all these geometric earthworks and that, and he was fascinated by it. So I actually took a trip and uh, visited some sites. So one of the first tourists in Ohio to see the mounds was uh, Old Honest Dave. <laughs> well, there you go. So there's, uh, it has been part of our history for quite a while. And I'm really interested in what you're going to do your research about uh, this uh the wars there in the this part of the country. Needless to say, where I live, you got Fort Mags and Tecumseh and all that kind of stuff. And there's some rich history as far as that goes. I don't know if you knew this, but since we both share the same river, uh, right now you have to dredge the, the, the muddy mommy at the bay and to keep it at eight feet of depth because all the sediment from your neck of the woods all the way down fills into the bay. But before they they uh, dredged the Black Swamp, as the region of the Nucus County would be called, it used to be a big swamp, and then the watershed for the Maumee River all drained into there. Uh, it was 70 feet deep, crystal clear, it had its own native wild uh Rice. I don't know if you knew this, but 100, 150 years ago, uh, wild bison roamed in our region. Um, they had their own native parakeet, the Carolina parakeet. And many suggest, I don't know how they can prove it, but they suggest, at least they have an argument, that uh, prior to the draining of the region where I live in and all the agricultural development and everything that happens, the settling over the area, that there was more biomass in just in northwest Ohio and southeast Michigan than all of Alaska combined. You talk about all the different waterfowl, all the different animals, the biodiversity, um, the oak openings uh, region. And um, so, you know, there was a lot more... My point, I guess, and all this is what we live in today, what we call our world, our reality, what we experience is nothing what it was 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. You just keep going back and back. And, you know, we have a tendency of thinking that, especially in this country, because of how we've been educated, that nothing was happening prior to uh, Europeans show, showing up and settling the, the region. And uh, 
what you are demonstrating just, you know, just in the mountains themselves is uh, that there was a lot going on here. The pyramids that are around here in this part of the, the country, and well, especially going west. But, uh, I mean, there was a lot going on, wasn't there, Fritz? A lot more than well, we could there, fathom. Well, there was. And, you know, yeah, the uh, the landscape was completely different of oak forests and uh, broken up by prairies and uh, um, water table was higher. So the little tiny creeks had probably more water in them back then because things weren't being drained off. Um, but yeah, you had prairies and big oak forests and trees so big you it would take six guys arm in arm to go around the base of it. Now yeah. people drive down a road and they look into a woods and they go, that's a woods. And they say, well, that woods was just everywhere. And it's like, well, no, it wasn't because it didn't look anything like that. No. So that patch of trees that you're looking at, because everything has been cut down. There are no old growth forests is what they call them. There's like a little patch up in Michigan. I think there might be one in Indiana, but very little. Everything was sold. Every tree was cut down because trees had value. And they're still being cut down. You go, I mean, there's people out looking at those woods. And if they see a walnut tree out there or an oak tree, they're going to go to that farmer and say, that walnut tree is worth two grand. That's what we'll give you for that. And a farmer will say, take it. But we've had 200 years of that. So all of it's gone. So really you just have some new growth scrub. So I if uh, any of you ever been out on a public uh, park or state park, you know, you know you get off the trail, you're going to run into briars and all sorts of nasty stuff out there because that's all considered new growth. Back in the day, um, you know, the canopy of the forest would have been about 20 foot high and there would have been nothing basically growing on the bottom. There had gotten no light. So you could go through a forest pretty unimpended with the big trees and all that. And you would have been able to spot a deer from half a mile away. You know, now you couldn't see a deer. Sometimes I've almost stepped on them before. I stepped on, almost stepped on a fawn one time when I was in a wood. He was tucked away and jumped out in front of me, but I couldn't see it. But, you know, this uh-huh. it's a different world. It's a different world that we have now than what these ancient people lived in. Oh yeah, just just uh, the the accounts from the uh, the soldiers at Fort Meigs and what Maumee River was like, and they said you you know they would talk about how you could literally during the runs, whether it was the sturgeon runs, the walleye runs, the blue pike run was now extinct, um, all the many other species that you literally they said you could walk from one side of the river to the other. Um, just on fish and uh, the, the sturgeon were the, were the size of logs. In fact, you know what they used the sturgeon for? Uh, so the caviar, they used the rest of it as firewood. And um, yeah, this not we we have lost. We don't have even a clue. We don't. We can't even fathom. In fact, so much is lost 
that the only thing we have are some diaries, entries. Which, by the way, if you think about that, Fritz, uh, just as a side note, now we live in a, this technical age, this digital age, where you know before people, you know, was part of their their thing to do, you know, the, the diary every night. Uh, who does that anymore? How many people actually do that? Where are we going <laughs> to? I don't know. It just it seems like a, it's an uphill struggle. So, my hats off to you. Fritz, I, I would like you to, to, to hang out with me again sometime down the road. I know you're a busy guy, but one way or the other, whether we meet up, we're not, we don't live that too far away, you know, as far as uh, maybe going to check out a mound or two. And, uh, um, you know, if yeah, you need I'll any be... help, help for free search, and if I can help you out in my my county next to what you let me know, and I'll try to do my best. Um, well, I will be in the field. I'll be in the field this winter. So uh, um, any of your listeners who are out and about and they get the travel guide, you might run into me because I'm um, re-photographing and getting those GPS coordinates to about 100 sites. So, yeah, I'll definitely be. Would you be be willing uh, to come back on the show uh, maybe later on in a couple months with the, um, the intent of maybe, like, Talk to us about like a half a dozen to a dozen sites, and you know, be uh, describe it in more detail for people what you know what to expect, the history behind it as much as you can. I know you got a book to do that and all that. I understand. We're, hopefully, people will buy the book, but there's no way even if we spend an hour, we could even scratch the surface on a book. So don't, I don't think it's going to take too much for your book. But I think it would be a, a nice conversation to have uh, and people to hear. Maybe it may kind of painted a, a verbal picture of what people are seeing in a little more in depth. Would you be willing to do something like that? Yeah, I would do that. And, yeah, you alluded to that. Um, I mean, you need Fallen Angels and then the travel guide, but when you have that ammunition and you go to these earthworks, it's going to mean so much more to you because I'm going to explain the sacred landscape and the importance of spring. So you're not just going to go to the earthwork. You're going to be looking for stuff. You're going to be looking for the springs. And you're going to be looking for this. And you're going to be looking for that. And you're going to listen for the sounds. I also you're listen also... for the sounds of the river. And it's like, what is, what's that telling you? So, you know, it's going to be more sensual um, as far as, you know, hearing and seeing and the landscape and all this goes together. That was like, why is this sitting here? And so it's going to be enriching, and you're going to go in there knowledgeable. Because if you go and you see a, a mound of dirt, which let me just touch on real quick before uh, we wrap this up. These mound builders were ancestral worshipers, so they believed their ancestors governed the future. So the mounds were worshipped. They didn't believe that their ancestors went to Valhalla or heaven or the happy hunting ground. Their ancestors were right here. Those spirits were right here. So that's still there around those mounds. So anyone out there that's sensitive or anything like that, you'll definitely pick up on that, that these are still like energy portals. Now, interesting enough, and I'm getting a little bit into the paranormal and the connection with the mounds, but um, there's a connection between where, you know, there's paranormal shows everywhere on TV. 
So I took the two most popular and mapped where they had been. You know where they've been the most? The Ohio Valley. Oh, yeah. There's, there's so they're so out in L.A. There's they're in so LA, much they're in Ohio. Here. Yeah, they're in and up here. They're so Ohio, if you watch paranormal shows, they're always in Ohio. Yeah. Well, why is that? Well, yeah. because these are yeah. portals. Well, what's what's the number one haunted spot in America? Moundsville Prison. What's in front of Moundsville Prison? A 70-foot burial mound. The largest in the whole Ohio Valley is right there. Who was in it? A woman on top was seven and a half foot, and her husband was in the bottom, and he was over eight foot. Well, this is interesting, too, because, you know, this now goes into back to the Bible. I'm talking about whoever these people were, and if they were the offsprings of fallen angels and people, then a lot of folks say that that's these demons, that they call demons, or some people might call them acrons or whatever, uh, but uh, that, uh, you know, when they die, because they do not, because they're like, they're not allowed. There's nowhere to go. They're stuck here. And, right, they're uh, earthbound. They're earthbound. So, and, you know, I, I am part Cherokee and Ojibwe, so I, I for whatever, it, it, for some reason I'm, I'm very much more sensitive to all these things. I'm the type of guy in my past. I designed nature trails. I was always at the Maumee River, the bay, and fishing, and just in the woods and all that kind of stuff. That's who I was as a young man. In fact, that was the only refuge I found. So I am very sensitive to such things. And I know that this region has very much... Um, you know, the Christians who call it demonic... Uh, realm that is active, others are called spiritual, whatever you want to call it. But if it goes along with what we're talking about here, which is um, that these uh, are the, you know, the, uh, the spirits of fallen angels, of d- d- demonic spirits, then that makes quite a bit of sense to me. Um, well, yeah, they're the, the product of of that. But, you know, there's uh, and there's evidence of that, which I'm getting into. I mean, it's an aspect that it wasn't even in the book, but i just been getting into this in about the last three months. It's like, well, is there a correlation between hauntings in America and burial mounts? And actually, I, I posted a uh, a U.S. map. It's online. I don't know what to look for, um, but it's on there. And, uh, yeah, I was amazed. It's like, wow, they're ending up in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, West Virginia, and Kentucky, which is where 90% of the Giants are and 10% scattered across the rest of the country. And by the, uh, by the way, this gets even weirder, just to let you know. I know this is going to be deviation from what you're talking about, but it's not. I think it has a relevance in a deeper, more spiritual matter. You know, a lot of people say, like, that the Church of Satan, the very first one, was on the West Coast. It wasn't. First started in Cleveland, then went all the way to your neck of the woods, going down the turnpike, and then settled in Toledo. The very first Church of Satan was actually here in our 
And there is something going on. And even in Mansfield, and talking about that, there was a lot of weird things going on there for a long time. It's not just sighting of orbs and all that kind of stuff. It's been a quite, <clears throat> well, these folks, these practitioners of dark magic, which is real, uh, it sounds to me from the interview that's, that I've heard you, you, you've, you know a little bit about the Talmud and quite a few of the rabbis or thematic rabbis will admit that a large portion of the Talmud is about magic, black magic. And so it's always been part of uh, the history of man. Magic. Sorcery. Demonology. This whole sort of thing of conjuring demons and um, the other side. And so it is quite disturbing. Yeah, we could talk more about that, because I know, I've heard from one of your interviews that uh, you had at least one extremely weird experience that you reckon you felt. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I did. <laughs> I ran I ran into something. I don't know if it was a demon. I think it was a demon, because it spent a day with me, and things went crazy, but uh, yeah, disembodied voice. I've seen shadow people at these uh, earthwork sites. Um, yeah, and I'm by myself in remote Ohio up on a hill. So yeah, <laughs> you see stuff like that. Um, and really my brother, my big my brother research, has, has a lot of weird stuff like that. You know, he's one of those guys that's seen a lot of those things too. But, you know, the but when, I was, but when have, I was doing it, I really hadn't put those dots together. So, I think I'd be a lot more freaked out now seeing it than I was back then because I was on a mission. I had 700 sites to visit, and so I'm going, I'm getting my photos, and I'm leaving. And, uh, you know, as the book was coming together, it would be like, wow, you know, that, that really might have been something. Well, well, you know, I heard the disembodied voice. And it actually was controlling my car, spinning my car wheel, um, or steering wheel. Um, I didn't know about the Mothman. Right. And that was a point. I was across the river in Gallipolis, and I took a picture uh, down. I could see the mouth of the Kanawha. Now, here's what's interesting about that. You know what the Shawnee called the Kanawha River? The River of Evil Spirits. And do you know what Indian tribe lived in West Virginia? Kind of a trick question. None. <laughs> scared, scared, scared to death of it. Wouldn't go there. They'd go in there to hunt, but they'd come right back out. But they were scared to death of it. They were scared to death of Kentucky. Uh-huh. Scared to death. That's They didn't live there. They were so freaked out by the spirits that resided there, they wouldn't Which- live there. Which part of Kentucky are they talking about? You know? Um, especially um, down around uh, kind of where my mounds are, Richmond area and, and that. Now, at times there were people in and out, but overall, no. Well, I mean, like the Miami Indians would go down to the Ohio River, but they never had settlements over on the Kentucky side. And you can tell that by if you drive along the Ohio River – down in that region, uh-huh. it is depressed, so economically depressed along the Ohio, on the uh, Ohio side. Then you jump over to Kentucky and you see all these federal-looking buildings and nice little towns and all that. So 
even today you can kind of pick up on that. that Southern Indies, that Indiana's that way too. I remember I lived of all places. Uh, well, first after high school, I went to Northern India, uh, Northern California. It had its own interesting vibe, to stay the least. But then, uh, then I I was in of all places, Mockport, Indiana. You know that place? You've heard it before? If you haven't, don't worry about it. It's right along the, the, the Ohio River. There's a toll bridge there. And talk about depressed. And not only that, but this... Um, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff going on. Yeah, a lot of weird old... stuff. A lot of weird stuff. And now, you know, I was a guy preparing myself to go on a Mormon mission. I went to... For a, you know, went to London, England. From, but anyway, it's a long story, but... Well, there I was working, and um, so I got a chance to. You got New Albany and Louisville, and there's definitely some weird stuff going along that river, man. Some weird, weird vibes. And uh, you know, the tree people, yeah. the tree people. When I mean, you talk about the Mothman, that'd be another thing, like the tree people. Um, the the Southerners, we call them boogers, or some people call them Bigfoot, or something like that. But it's they're really the tree people. They live in the trees. Um, my brother has seen Bigfoot and a lot of these other type of things. And so, yeah, it's just weird stuff that happens. Especially if you're yeah. a little bit sensitive to it. And for some reason, for better or worse, I have been. My big brother really has been. And uh, people think you're nuts. You talk about this stuff, but. You know, there's one thing when you, well, this, there's just, you know, telling scary stories around the campfire. And there's another thing when you just feel things and see things that you just should not be seeing or feeling. So, yeah, you, you <laughs> would get that. My, my travels into Kentucky, um, and you were on edge and didn't know why. And uh, like I said, you know, early on, I mean, I was an explorer and I had to get to these sites, but, man, I'd just be on edge. I'd be going to these remote spots in Kentucky or West Virginia and just be, man, I'm just glad I'm done, you know, in my car and driving out of this. But, yeah, if you're a sensitive at all, you'll get goosebumps crossing the Ohio River going into West Virginia. And uh, I've been there plenty of times, and I've told other people about it, and uh, other people have uh, well, the Cumberland, Yeah, it's like, they said, yeah, it's like, it's just haunted. It's like, it's you just feel like you're going, driving into a, a, a haunted land. Yeah, and there's the Cumberland Gap and all that other jazz, so. Um, you know, I, and, and I'm not being, I don't belong to any religion anymore, but I, I have come to believe and Jesus Christ, and and, I, and the reason is because of experience, and because of what has gone on in the past five years of my life. And I don't belong to any church, and the reason, and one of the reasons I believe is outside of Him drawing me to Him is the fact that these weird experiences, calling on upon His name, actually works. <laughs> and by the way, you're going to hear this over and over again, especially people that experience things like with ETs or uh, whatever, you know, uh, paralysis, you know, being attacked by the demonic forces in the bedroom. They call upon his, 
his name really does something to these beings. There's something beyond uh, the Catholic Church or the Mormon Church or anything that's organized. There's just that Christ is real. These, um, I, I don't know. Uh, are you familiar with L.A. Marzulli? Yeah, and his work on the Nephilim. You know, and that's, I have to be honest. I'll be real upfront with you, Fritz. Uh, I've been really hesitant about talking to anybody because of the the the, uh, the good old boy club that's involved in this. And the reason why I reached out to you is because you're not doing what he's doing. I'm not saying that, that he's bad, a bad guy, or anything like that at all. I'm not saying that, but it just been, it scares me when I see the high production value of all these shows and all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? It's like, ah, I'd rather talk to a guy like you that's just writing a book, you know what I mean? <laughs> just some guy well, that lives in Fort, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I could, I could live with that for now. You know what I mean? I mean, I could I could probably reach out to L.A. and talk to him, but I don't, I'm not ready for that. So, But go ahead. I'm not knocking L.A. Well, I'm just saying, you know. Well, uh, well, we're we're kind of on two different pages. We're not. We are. We're not. Um, I'm. I write for his E magazine. I have an article with his E magazine every month. That's true. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, we've met a couple times, and we went to mountain sites. We were at Newark, and well, uh, we were going around the head. Before the you head. go any further, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Before relieve me of my concern, and those who listen to my show. Tell us about L.I. Who is he really? I mean, be honest with us. Right? <laughs> I know I put you right on the spot, but you know what? You know what? So many of us have been burned by these people, these guys that call themselves, well, followers of Christ. And all they are is, well, I hate to say it, but charlatans. I'm not saying L.A. is, but relieve us. Who is L.A.? Who is this guy? Well, that everyone knows. <laughs> believes that what we were talking about, that there is a demonic connection between these giants that are buried here and that the supernatural has something to do with the mounds, which I've come to believe totally. Um, but there's a connection there. But it's not a good connection. No. It's bad. And so... In that realm, you know, we are on the same page. Um, but that's kind of what his whole Nephilim thing revolves around. So uh, he doesn't really um, deviate too much from from where I am. But it's interesting because he thinks that UFOs have something to do with the Nephilim. He thinks that this, uh, you know, the supernatural has something to do with the Nephilim. Um, things like Bigfoot would have something, that it's some sort of spiritual entity. It's manifesting. So interesting stuff. You know, one thing that we have as fellow authors is we're all friends. We meet at conferences and this and that. We all have like our own take, but we all appreciate one another and appreciate one's research. And so we never really uh, disparage one another and just appreciate people for what they're doing because generally we're going to have threads within our research that are all going to be the same and it would be the same with him too. And, uh, but, uh, no, I've, uh, I've enjoyed, uh, uh, the time that I've known him and, uh, 
I think it's he has an interesting aspect. He has plenty on YouTube that's free to watch. If somebody wants to make their own opinion, watch that. See what he has to talk about. But uh, um, um, I find uh, his research pretty fascinating. Yeah, there's some stuff, especially this uh, latest story out there about the the giant that's in Afghanistan, the Afghanistan uh, giant. The, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. That's, if that's he says he's got some legit contacts about it, so I don't. I just, ah, uh, uh, you know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to judge him personally, but you know the good old boy network. I know you've run across it if you've been in the conferences. You, you've had yeah, to run not, across it. So, uh, anybody? Well, you know, he's appeared like you know on TCT, and you know, you got to take that with anything that comes out of that channel. But you know, he doesn't have <laughs> his own show or anything like that. But um, you know, he appeared on Sid Roth. Um, I met Sid Roth, seemed like a nice guy, seemed not to be a TCT Tourette. I thought he had an interesting show and was a little more open, but, um, you know, he's not hawking generators like Jim Baker or anything like that, so. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you never know, so. No, he's, I just wouldn't put him in that basket at all, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, he reached out to me because he had no idea that, uh, uh, anyone had ever written anything on the uh, Nephilim. And, um, you know, I'd come out with my book. So uh, um, that was back in 2012. So we've been pretty good friends and, you know, uh, colleagues. And I, like I said, I write for his uh, monthly e-magazine every month. So uh, um, we're on the same page, just on kind of different chapters a little bit. But a lot of our work is um, somewhat similar. And so, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, but well, uh, we we ran into we were at Newark and um, I was showing him the, the earthworks for the first time over there. We were at the uh, hen site, and uh, he had a report of a lady that there's a circular drive that goes around this earthwork. This earthwork's huge. It's uh, what two thousand foot diameter. Just to give you an idea how big it is. Um, but that big ditch in the middle that goes down about 12 foot, just massive earthwork. Um, but yeah, this lady on the outside of that had stuff that was flying around in her house and this and that, and we stopped there. I really didn't want to. But he's like, well, I got to do, you know, this lady, and she's, you know, you know, reaching out to the church for somebody to come out here and bless her home. And uh, I'll tell you what, I had goosebumps just standing in her yard. I was waiting for a pot or something to hit the window, but uh, yeah, it's pretty creepy, but it was right there at one of those sites, so kind of go back to what we were talking about. It's like, yeah, there's some there's some weird things, and uh, yeah, if you have any kind of that sensitive thing, you know, when we started this, I mean, years ago, um, I had a, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Kathy, would go to a lot of the sites with me, and uh, we called it the Vibe just this energy. And that's before we really knew what, you know, what was going on. This is when, I mean, in the beginning, like first year or so. So, I mean, that's been ongoing, that there's like an energy field that kind of surrounds these burial mounds and earthworks that, you know, if you have any inclination to that, you'll definitely um, witness that when you go to the site. So just another layer. I wonder how much, because you and I, we live in, 
Freemason country. Everything's gridded out in, in a certain way, and uh, you got the Indianapolis, which is like the Washington D.C. of the, the Great Lakes region, and at one time it was actually the, the Washington D.C. of the West, right? I mean, just full of obelisks and all sorts of things, and um, and there's a lot, there's a lot of things that have gone on around here, um, whether it's the Europeans or the Native Americans, or the something in the past. Um, yeah. And then there's... Um, have you heard anything about the cloud people around these mounds? These mounds? Has anybody ever told you, you know, about the, the being things mm-hmm. in the sky type of thing? No. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm not running around <clears> with that yet. Yeah. But if it's some supernatural event, then, I don't know, it could be tied in there to certainly finding more and more evidence of that. And just, a, you know, not evidence that's new, because, you know, like I said, I said, we noticed that, you know, from from the get-go, that there was a connection. But, um, you know, my research to kind of crack what the religion was, knowing what the religion was in England, this ancestral worship, knowing that those spirits are there, those mounds are portals. They're doorways. Spirits can come in and out. So, I mean, it could be a giant, could be just something evil, could be a demon, could be anything. Could be Uncle Dan could possibly zip through a mound site. You know, it's a doorway. It's a light right. um, on the other side. So, um, you know, Ellie uh, Marzulli, too, you know, it's, uh, if him and, and, and others are, are, are right, you know, about these demonic entities, these coming from the Nephilim and all that. And then we look at uh, Luciferianism and Satan worship, then it starts to bring some legitimacy to that whole, truly to the, that story. And that they are, and uh, yeah. So yeah, and then they got the, the uh, maybe one of these days we'll talk about the cloud people. But this seems like you, you, you'll, you know, if, You'll know of them because you'll see them in the clouds. So, <laughs> well, but no. it's not—it's not like no. aliens and stuff like that. It's like it's like faces. You know what I mean? It's kind of like uh, how some people right. when I mean, you stare at the clouds and they see a, a, a crocodile, a hippopotamus, or whatever. You know, and it's just kind of that faces in the clouds. So. Well, I will look into that because I—I've never even heard about cloud people, not shadow says- people. Disembodied voices, um, but uh, no, no, nothing in the clouds. Of course, I really wasn't looking, so that's half of it, right? Yeah. Of course, I wasn't I w- really looking for the shadow people. I just saw them. And, uh, and then, thankfully, I didn't know anything. It's like I didn't think much of it. It wasn't until later when I learned what all this stuff was. When I got back and learned what the Mothman was, like, what? There's some demon running around there? Now, what's interesting is, you know, the uh, Mothman, the Indians knew of him. They called him Piasu. Piasu, yes. And he was a winged, dog-faced, red-eyed, clawed figure, you know, just to make it simple, um, which is very similar to the Sumerian demon Pazuzu. The that's that little, the that's a little thing in uh, the Exorcist movie. Uh-huh. A little 
icon they have, that was Pazuzu, who was a dog-faced, red-eyed, winged creature. I thought it's one and the same. That Piazu, that Mothman is Piazu, and Piazu is Pazuzu, the demon. Mm. And that's what's flying around there. And we have the Shawnee, that's, you know, Point Pleasant, right there at the mouth of the Kanawha. And that's what that is. We have the Shawnee calling that the River of Evil Spirits. We go down Charleston, we have two Circular Earthworks, 666. Again, not meaning it's demonic, but these people were the giants, fallen angels, all that. So we have that backstory with that. So it's kind of an interesting correlation and similarity in what the Native Americans called it and what the Sumerians, who were related to the Amorites, what they had. And that nobody would live around there. They were scared to death of it. So, yeah, kind of interesting. That number, too, if you really look at it, you know, the number of man and his uh, man-worship, self-worship. And then on top of that, you have 66. If you look at, well, anyone who does any serious study about the leadership of the papacy and also the leadership of the Talmudic rabbis, we're talking the practitioners of the black arts. They do believe that they are worshiping their god is Lucifer. And well, they, I believe that if they, enough people believe something, it will be true. You know, if 13 is an unlucky number because everybody believes it. So all of that thought can manifest into a reality. So 666 is kind of the same way. I mean, it didn't begin in that way, which is what my history says. It's like, well, this isn't the original meaning. So we're going to look at it as original as meaning the sun, and this is how it's used in the context of sun worship. But over time, that all these people believing that 666 is demonic, it just becomes demonic. It manifests. Well, the, number is, the number itself, is, of course, is not. Uh, not at all. But it's just symbolic of something that when you find these particular groups of people using that number, that are professing themselves to be worshiping demons, the, the then right, the devil. Yeah. And, and this, then by the way, this is demonic. So, yeah, I, I believe in that. So, yeah. the number itself I, has no power at all. It's the, the intent behind the number and what you're doing with it, right? I mean, it's what you're trying to accomplish, right? If you want to build a building that's 600. You know, feet and sixty-six inches, or whatever. You know, that's not right. Sixty, whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Whatever. It's six hundred and sixty-six. It's whatever. I mean, it's not going to have any power. It's not going to draw Satan or Lucifer or the devil or the dark side at all. It's what you're going after and what your intents are, and it is self-evident. The history is replete now on both sides. Uh, these two groups, and not just those groups alone. There's one thing I noticed: all these, the priest, the priestcraft, they all wear black. Whether it's the uh, the rabbi, the the Jesuit priest, or whoever it may be, you know, they all wear black. And 
even the the judge in your local court. Where's Black? Yep. The magistrate. And uh, there's something very sinister about everything that that's something about power. And there's something like there's a need that maybe you know the Amorites certainly would have known, and the people and uh, you know this this continent would have known because it was no secret that. A lot of that iconology comes from the Masons. And do you know the Washington Monument? Oh, yeah. 555 feet tall. Right. Um, I have an earthwork in Lexington, Kentucky. It's a hinge. 555 feet circumference. 555.5 times pi. you got to take five out forever to get close. But anyway, this is... This is what was intended. This is what they were doing. The Masons were doing it, too. So if you're on your calculator and you're adding this up, you're like, oh, I'm a little short. Like, well, you got to just keep adding fives. But anyway, they were doing it. But times 12 inches is, you know, 6,666. But you get the 555 and you get the 666. But if you take the 555 times pi, you get 1746. 1746 is a sum total of 666 and 1080. Well, that's the basis of the Mount Buddha religion is the yin-yang, the sacred marriage, the sacred marriage of the sun and the earth mother. That's why you have circles and squares in the Ohio Valley together. It's the sacred marriage of opposites. It's both numerologically presented and sacred geometry presented, circles and squares. Circles and squares that have been squared circles. So the circle and the square have equal amount of area. Why? Because you want that balance. You don't want too much sun. You don't want too much earth mother. There has to be a balance there. But the Washington Monument, who are the Masons, who know all about the Amorites and their numerology, built that because what did George Washington um, project? He could have been king, but he didn't. He was the balance, the balance of power from what our government was based on, the balance of powers. George Washington had that. How do you recognize that in a monument? You make it 555 feet. And you can go to something here in Kentucky that's also 555 feet with the exact same meaning, meaning there's a connection from those earthworks that you're going to see and what you're going to see in Washington. It's all connected. Interesting. From then until now. So it's a big story. Yeah. And the old religion, that's what we're talking about, the mystery schools, and we're talking about from the very, the oldest religion. <laughs> it was based right. upon uh, just what you're talking about, gematry, gematry. Uh, oh, gosh, I'm not saying it right. What am I trying to say? Gematry. And... Um, and uh, and several other things. So yeah, it's and if, <clears throat> would it be that surprising? You know what's really uh, surprising is the fact that uh, oh, none of this is really surprising. None of it's surprising. Well, I was going to say it's surprising how they tried so hard to hide all this stuff from this side, but I understand why. When well, I say this, the thing is, it's not hidden. It's all there. I think I'm just the first person to put it all together. But it's all there. I mean, everybody can go look online. How tall is the Washington Monument? 555 feet. 
Well, that didn't mean anything to anybody. Well, that's a nice number. But what does it mean? Well, unless you know, then you don't know. So it means nothing. It's not part of your paradigm. It's not what you're, you know, you're hardwired to even think. You just blow it off. But now you know these secrets, and you know that you can go to something that was built 2,000 years before with the same measurement. And do you know what the uh, solar alignment, uh, I mean, probably guess, what the solar alignment of the 555 is? It's going to happen in a few days. Equinox. Equinox. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the balance uh, September between 20th. light and dark. September 22nd, yeah. it is? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because, you know, um, yeah, you'll find a lot of things happen during that time, too. It becomes a Freemasonry and with the Jesuits and the Pope. The Pope is a Jesuit. They came last year to Washington, D.C. In front of that uh, monument, they got photos, which ops galore of him and uh, Obama, you know, looking at that, you know, the obelisk, you know, the male phallic symbol, and uh, and it was right then where you're talking about this, the uh, September twenty uh, second and twenty third, were very important days for the the Jesuits, which are practitioners of the Kabbalah, just as the Talmud is part of the Kabbalah, and especially that the the um, Oh, the rabbis and the, the leadership there. And so uh, it seems to be universal. It, it's not just, it, it could be from Catholics, it can be the Jews, it can be the Muslims. It seems like all the leadership, they all were practitioners of this stuff. They know about it. Well, you know, the word ab, O-B, is an Egyptian word. It means serpent. Ah, Obelisk is a serpent. I mean, it doesn't look like it, but that's what they were going after. Um, but yes. in that word, it's serpent. So, you know, again, it's like old school, you know, attached to newer things. There's, like definitely, the there's definitely a connection between um, what you're doing, your studies, and the past, and the present, and also through all these other cultures. I mean, it's it's unmistakable. You know, it's kind of hard not to see it. That, uh, well, but you know that there wasn't an ancient civilization that came, went, and left nothing. That it did leave something. Um, for instance, um, Og. Og was the kind of giant that was the king. Um, they had Edri and uh, Asherah. Asherah, of course, Astar, our Easter, um, the two cities that he had. But Og, the word Og. Og is an ancient god. He was an ancient sun god. Og, the all-knowing, the great eye in the sky. Well, <laughs> what words do we have for that? To uh, to ogle somebody or to be googly-eyed is Og. It's in reference to him seeing. If you Google something, that's og. Google that word Google or ogle comes from og. Og was believed well the early because I think they're they're related to the Horites. But anyway, they were cave people. That's where we get the word troglodyte. Um, they said he was um, ugsome. Where we get ugly is from og. Um, 
So there's a lot of words. And I have a whole book and or a whole chapter on uh in Fallen Angels on etymology of these ancient characters and how even today we use their names and what names they are associated with or what is the root of 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 these words. Um that we have, and it's like, well, this comes from a giant named Og that's in the Bible that, you know, that lived here and knew Joshua conquered. So, um, real opportunity to take that from then and bring it to present and just know that it's like, you know, this is a bigger part of our life than, than I ever imagined that I have this much of a connection to ancient Babylon. Um, ancient Babylon, they used a, uh, 12 number system, uh, duodecimal number yeah. system, 12. Whenever you look at a ruler and see 12, Babylon. When you look at a clock, Babylon. When you look at the... Uh-oh. Hello? Uh-oh. Well, sure enough. <clears throat> Looks like we lost Fritz. Let's see if I can call him again, but... We've been doing it for a while, so I don't expect to. Uh, yeah. Let's see what's going on here. And we'll go back to this. Yeah, it's very interesting, if to say the least. And it could be, uh, could be nothing. But it could be a whole lot of something. Yeah, I lost you there for a second. That's okay. Well, I tell you what, let's 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 just join each uh, next time we get together. Let's get into this uh, Babylonian system, the number system of the twelve, and the sixes and all that kind of stuff more. But we've been doing this for two hours, and uh, I want to be able to have other people hear this. And, you know, after about two hours, nobody wants to hear. They lose focus. So, but I think it's. I know we started slow. And I apologize. It probably was more my fault than anything. But uh, but we started to warm up towards the, the second half of the show. So, And uh, I really would like to have you as a fellow Great Laker and uh, and someone who shares the border and the river and sort of and other things that you come back on my show. Sure. And um, you talk more and... Uh, get more in depth at all this because you know this there as we're demonstrating this conversation this leads in so many different directions beyond whether or not <clears throat> how big the the giants were that are even much right. more significant in our lives to present day you know what i mean not well, to say they're yeah, not that they weren't giants when i do it when i do a talk i don't even talk about giants i don't talk about these people were nine foot, these were eight. It's all this backstory. That's what I talk about. Because that's what connects it all. So, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Fritz, I really appreciate it. All and, right, good um, speaking with you. I will email. You know what? I don't have your email. Um, if you can, on Facebook, if you could send me your email, and if you're comfortable with it, and I will send you, a, you know, the link to the show. And 
Um, yeah, see that, and then uh, if you would uh, put links to the book so uh, any of your uh, listeners, if they want to do it, they can quickly uh, pop on that. And Before you leave us, on. let's go over once again how they can get a hold of your books, the name of your books, the blog that you do. Um, can they reach you, friend you on Facebook, right, and et cetera? So. Yeah, they can friend me on Facebook. Um, um, I have one blog, Fallen Angels in Ohio Valley. I have another, um, Encyclopedia of Giants. I also have Giant Humans. I have Bound Builders. I probably got about eight blogs on, on this topic. So if you look up Giants, you're just going to run into me. Um, and you'll probably see my book on the side of, of any one of those, uh, uh, one of the sites. All the books available, of course, on Amazon, um, Encyclopedia, Fallen Angels, Travel Guide, all that, those three books. Uh, all available there, so that should be enough to uh, get them where they need to go. I'm pretty easy to find. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got uh, a couple of thank yous. Thank you, Fritz. Um, God bless you too. I will check it out. Uh, another thank you, Fritz. So, yeah, people appreciated it. So, and uh, you know, who wouldn't be interested in this story? <laughs> Honestly, who wouldn't be, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, my email, if, I don't care who has my uh, my email, but it's just my name, gmail.com. Okay. Pretty easy. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so, so it's just the, the last name or the Fritz nope, Zimmerman? No, last name. Fritz Zimmerman, gmail.com. Okay, cool. That'll, that'll be me. So if anybody wants to send me a note, I don't mind. That's fine. Yeah. Hey man, thank you for sharing your Friday night with me. You didn't have to do that, so hope you yeah. have a great have a great weekend, huh? Yeah, you you as well. It's nice speaking to you. Excellent. You All right, stay in touch. Absolutely. All right, thanks. Fritz Zimmerman, once again, folks. So, and uh, actually, tomorrow we're going to be having more of the same thing. I'm uh, going to be talking to uh, Nita. Hilter, um, I don't want to butcher her name. Please forgive me, Nita. It's 11 o'clock at night, and I've been being a father all day. Oh, oh gosh. Okay, we're, 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 we're okay, Nita Hiltner, and uh, uh, we both have an interest in this particular topic. Uh, and we both have chickens, so <laughs> I imagine we'll be talking about chickens as well. That's at 6 o'clock p.m. And then Wednesday, we got Jonathan McTimmies, Mc, McTimmies, and I always say Jonathan's name wrong, but he, you can find his stuff on YouTube and, uh, oh, yeah, we should be talking uh, quite a bit about a lot of things. So, and uh, yeah, I should probably end the recording. So, yep, I'll end the recording now. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.